One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For anybody who really wants to annoy early career Egyptologists, say hieroglyphical, that will send them into a panic. I'm totally going to do that. For the rest of this podcast, in case there's any early career Egyptologists, I shall <laughs> refer to them as hieroglyphicals. <laughs> Vulture, woman giving birth, god with jackal head, baboon in a basket. I'm talking about hieroglyphs. Before they were deciphered because of the Rosetta Stone, for a thousand years, hieroglyphs just lay there in secret but in plain sight, promising magic and ancient wisdom and mystique and intrigue. Scholars were absolutely sure that these symbols somehow transcended time and would reveal the secrets of the gods. I mean, how could they not just look at them? They exude intrigue and magic and adventure and marvel. And then a French chap called Jean-Francois Champelion cracked the code, thanks to the Rosetta Stone, and we discovered that an awful lot of these pictorial hieroglyphs were just receipts for things and tax returns and the stuff of the day-to-day all rather dull. Anyway, hello. Welcome to another episode of Patented. It's my podcast about the history of invention from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. The hieroglyphs. Who, when, why, where, where did they become from? Whose idea were they? When did they start? My guest today to unpick their secrets is a good friend of mine, the very wonderful Chris Norton, who we've had on the show before, and all-round Bon Homme and Good Egg. We're going to be asking him, how far can we go back with the hieroglyphs. How do they actually work? Is there a grammar to them? Like, what's the deal? Can we learn to read them? All these and other questions will be answered as we travel back to before the pyramids, to the origins of the most ancient script of them all. Cow, owl-holding branch, eye of Horus, snake, snake. I'm talking to you. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Lovely to have you with us after the triumph of our episode about pyramids. Oh, bless you for saying that. Yeah, I, I was lots of fun and it's great to be back. Thanks for having me again. First of all, we have to clear up. It's hieroglyphs. 
It's not hieroglyphics, it's hieroglyphs, isn't it? Do you get really cross when people say hieroglyphics? Or I'm relaxed about it. I think part of the sort of training to become an Egyptologist involves an initial kind of anger when you acquire a small amount of knowledge, which allows you to distinguish yourself from the great unwashed and the civilian population by saying things like, it's not that... And then you sort of pass through that and realise it really doesn't matter. That is the best explanation of pedantry I think I've ever heard. See, I think, I agree with you. Pedantry is the last refuge of, who said that? Was it Oscar? But last refuge of the witless, I think, or something. Like that. And you're right, it's <laughs> yes. that small amount of knowledge Excellent. people get cross about. Like real experts, like yourself, it, they don't get cross. Yeah, this is something I've observed over quite a long period of time now. I think everyone needs to just chill out. I've stopped really caring about whether anybody thinks I have any expertise or not. So I don't need to assault people with pedantry. That is the sign of a true expert. And if there are any experts listening in whatever field you're in, please have what Chris just said carved on your tombstone. There's a a dramatisation of the creation of the Egypt Exploration Society in the 19th century, which put together for its centenary in 1982 by the BBC, And there's a great bit in that where they're Amelia Edwards, the founder, is in front of a a small audience summarising the latest discoveries in Egyptian studies. And she talks at one point about the language and says, and now on to hieroglyphical studies. (laughs) And so we can add an extra syllable to the word hieroglyphical. For anybody who really wants to annoy early career Egyptologists, say hieroglyphical. That will send them into a panic. I'm totally going to do that. For the rest of this podcast, in case there's any early career Egyptologists, that we shall refer to them as hieroglyphicals. So hieroglyphicals, eh? There's a, there's a subject we could talk about. Where did that come from? Well, in the 19th century. No, there's a <laughs> Everything appeared in the 19th century. We don't know. We don't exactly know, actually. That's a, maybe that's not the answer you wanted. But hieroglyphs is a script. It's the written form of a language. And we need to make the distinction between the language which the Egyptians would have spoken. But at a certain point, somebody says, do you know what? Actually, it'd be helpful if we could make a mark on this rock. And when you see that mark, that's the same thing as me saying to you, two bags of grain. Do you see what I mean? We don't have the very earliest forms of writing, the very first moment when some anonymous genius said, oh, it'd be helpful if we could write that down. I know what I'll do. I'll invent writing. But what we do have are from a little more than 5,000 years ago, names of elite individuals, kings, written using hieroglyphic signs. And then, in fact, we have a more or less complete sequence of one part of what comes to be Egypt. And then at the beginning of the first dynasty, a unified Egypt, each writing their names. Just remind us, so when we talk about dynasties, just for the early career Egyptologists listening, you might not be familiar. Like myself, I'm a very early career Egyptologist. Yes, but it's going well, I think. It's going okay. The Great Pyramid of Giza, for example, when was that? Because I remember, and this is me name dropping, going up the attic, the relieving chamber. Oh, yes, you did, With Zahi Hawass, who's the head honcho. And I remember him pointing out, he said, oh, look, there's some hieroglyphicals of Khufu, the man who built the pyramid. And it sort of had, exactly as you were saying, had his name in hieroglyphs in a cartouche, I think it's called. So Khufu is a ruler of the fourth dynasty. Okay, fourth. So when And there were 30 of these dynasties all in all. And the last of them ends in the fourth century BC, roughly the middle of the 300s BC. And the first of them began in 
approximately 3000 BC. So it's a, it's a little way short of 3000 years, 30 dynasties. So the Great Pyramid comes in after a few centuries, but hieroglyphs have already been established by the time of the first dynasty, in fact. What's our earliest record of hieroglyphs? Is, is there something that we can pick up and look at and go, that's the earliest example we've got? There's an object called the Narmer palette. Narmer is the name of a king. And a palette in this case is a roughly flat object which would have been used to mix paints or pigments, as you might expect. This is a ceremonial palette. So it wouldn't have had a practical function, but it's inscribed with images showing Narmer apparently in some sort of military victory. And we think now that in fact Narmer probably was the first king of a unified Egypt and that this palette commemorates the military victory or series of battles that allowed him to unify the country. And so this is the sort of moment at which ancient Egypt comes into being. So this is long before pyramid building? This is Yes, it is. Well, it's a couple of centuries before pyramid building, yes. Okay. And one of the things that is very striking about this object is that even though this is the moment everything starts, some of the iconography of kingship that would then endure for thousands of years are already in place so there are images of falcons and bulls that kind of thing i'm looking at it now actually. oh there just, you go I've lovely just, i've just googled yeah, there it you go. and it's got some guy hitting someone on the head with a hammer yes which is a very a very ancient egyptian motif that endures and a couple of looks like brontosauruses so sort of kind of dinosaurs with entangled necks yes yeah, some long-necked animals in that case actually that falls by the wayside that part of things but this is a long rambling way of getting to my point which is that there are also hieroglyphs here and including hieroglyphs which write the name of Narmer there he is okay so I'm just for our listeners it's a kind of shield shaped grey looks like a piece of slate with all these animals and people pictures on what's the difference between a picture of somebody and a hieroglyph I mean we wouldn't call cave paintings hieroglyphs no so that's a very good question And hieroglyphs, of course, are little pictures of recognisable things. Men, women, gods, animals, aspects of the natural environment, that sort of thing. But they are not, as we now know, purely symbolic script. It may well have been originally almost entirely a symbolic script. So so, so to give you an example, if you lived in the very earliest times, the pre-dynastic, and you had a lot of rope which you wanted to keep stored. You, in fact, had 10 ropes, and you knew that ropes were very desirable to people, and you were going to try and not only make them but sell them, and you wanted to make a record of the fact that you've got 10 ropes in your storeroom. You might make use of the newly invented system of hieroglyphic writing to write the word for a rope, which might, in fact, be a picture of a rope, and a number, 10, which might actually just be 10 sort of single strokes, Actually, there's another hieroglyphic sign for 10. But anyway, you see what I mean? It, it could be purely symbolic in that way. And probably to begin with, it was largely symbolic like that. But as it developed, those symbols come to be used to represent more abstract concepts. So, for example, a rope sign might not only represent the rope itself, but it might represent concept connected to rope, for example, tying something up, or even more abstract way, binding somebody or capturing a person or tethering an animal. So in that way, 
And we've had to sort of reverse engineer this by taking all of the evidence we've got from the whole of 3,000 years worth of ancient Egypt and interrogate it and work our way backwards. And we can now see that in some cases, yes, if you wanted to give somebody the impression that you know you own a rope, your inscription may simply have a rope sign. But equally, the rope sign doesn't always mean only that. It might mean lots of other things. So back to your original question, when we're looking at the palette of Narmer and you've got a picture of a king holding up a mace, which he's about to bring down onto the head of an enemy, that's all very clear in as much as that's a person with a weapon and another person cowering before them. We can understand what's going on there. I suppose images like that could potentially have developed into hieroglyphic writing, but we can already see in the case of the Narmer palette that you've got images like that which are purely symbolic, purely kind of pictographic, alongside hieroglyphic signs which are doing something else, more complex. Is there a point where we can see the idea of just making a painting transitioning into something more abstract, like a a hieroglyph? Is there examples of the development of hieroglyphs, or is it just bang, they're fully formed, here they are. I know what you mean. Not really. And that is one of the ways in which the Nama palette is so striking, because it seems to show that the hieroglyphic writing is already established. Mm. Part of the reason for this is that although in total, we now have thousands, probably millions of inscriptions from Egypt, the vast majority of what existed at the time is now lost to us. So we've got an infinitesimally small fraction of what there was and a lot of those inscriptions will have been written on materials that have perished so what we've got are things that are durable so materials like stone ivory but anything like papyrus which we know the egyptians used an awful lot of course is much more likely to have vanished see idiots like me one automatically assumes why did they just write on stone all the time <laughs> that must have taken ages but of course they didn't <laughs> it's just that that just happens to be the medium that has survived the best yes along with writing and things like names of kings writing is it's boring to say it, but it's fantastically helpful to organize people and resources and if you're doing something like building a pyramid back to our earlier discussion you need a way of keeping track of people and resources and things like that. And most of those records, as with most of all writing, I think it's probably fair to say in Egypt, was on papyrus. Yeah. And that just hasn't survived. If you just need to send a quick note to the quarry 500 miles away to say, 500 more big stones, please, you don't then want to have to commission a sculptor to write that out in beautiful hieroglyphs and then to have to lump a enormously heavy chunk of stone down to the other end. Much easier to get a scribe with a quill or the sort of ancient equivalent, a reed pen and some ink and a papyrus to just scribble it on very quickly and then dispatch it off with a messenger. I'm sure there was an asterisk book with that where they had to carve stuff on stone and it took ages. I can't remember <laughs> yeah. which asterisk book it was. When you see kind of early stone tablets, it always seems to be receipts for things. It always seems to be very sort of day-to-day stuff rather than... yes complex arguments about, I don't know, (laughs) Egyptian culture war issues. Yeah, it's funny to think that we often talk about hieroglyphs, I think, in terms of them being sort of sacred and having religious meaning, which they do sometimes. There was a scholar in the 17th century, one of the earliest Europeans to have a go at deciphering hieroglyphs, who was inspired by neoplatonism and the idea that there was a kind of commonly inherited religion of all human beings that related to kind of the natural elements and you know that sort of thing and he tried to read this stuff into hieroglyphs 
a winged scarab beetle becomes a symbol of the earth and the planets and the moon and that sort of stuff. He was completely and utterly wrong. And he read all sorts of meanings into the script that just simply weren't there at all. But exactly as you say, I think the likelihood is that the writing comes into being in the first place for entirely practical reasons. And it's also true as well that, again, probably 90, 95, 99% of everything that was ever written in ancient Egypt was written exactly as you say for something incredibly boring like just for record keeping or as a receipt or a tax document or something like that. We do have loads of that stuff. Of course, it just doesn't get so much attention because it's not quite as sexy. You talked about someone trying to decipher hieroglyphs. Maybe we should just focus on the hieroglyphs themselves. So who was the original person who tried to go, okay, let's try and translate this? It's probably important actually to say that the last hieroglyphic inscription that we know of it's a kind of informal inscription cut into a gateway that was originally erected by Hadrian, the Roman emperor, the southernmost part of Egypt at the Temple of Philae. And this is dated 394 AD. Wow. But already by this point, the kind of knowledge of how to write hieroglyphs is going. It's a terrible inscription, as if this guy doesn't really know what he's doing. It's then lost, essentially, for centuries. But more or less from that time onwards... Scholars from various different parts of the world, in particular in the Arab world during medieval times, there were attempts to try to read meaning into these very appealing looking signs. But long story short, in the early 19th century, two scholars, one British, one French, led the efforts to try and crack the code. The English guy is a kind of polymath, physicist, scientist, took an interest in everything, Thomas Young, the so-called last man who knew everything. Yes. On the French side, an extremely gifted linguist called Jean-Francois Champollion. And they were both making use of and had the advantage of being able to make use of the Rosetta Stone, which had only been discovered just over 20 years beforehand, which was the enabler of that cracking of the code. How lucky was that to find the Rosetta Stone? <laughs> yeah, very. And and all of the people who went before were absolutely handicapped by the fact that they didn't have this trilingual inscription. Just explain what the Rosetta Stone is. It's in the British Museum and it's this wonderful cipher, I suppose. Just But just explain to us what it is and why it's so useful. It's an object from the time of Ptolemy V. And this is actually a fairly boring decree inscription of the priests of the era of Ptolemy V. And in order that it could be understood as widely as possible, they wrote it in three different scripts. Hieroglyphs, which we know about, a script called Demotic, which is like a kind of cursive, kind of handwritten form of Egyptian. And then finally in Ancient Greek, which by that point was becoming the principal administrative language in Egypt. What's great about this for Champollion and Young, of course, is that the ancient Greek can be read. And they rightly assumed that the text says the same thing in these three different scripts. So if they could only identify words and phrases in the Greek, which could be read in the hieroglyphs, which couldn't be, then they would start, they hoped, to understand how hieroglyphs wrote the same sounds and concepts as the Greek did. It still took 20 years, but that set them on the path to understanding exactly how hieroglyphs did write the language. And eventually this leads to Champollion via a series of sort of breakthrough moments to being able to read it. So it wasn't directly written to be, this is how to translate these different languages together. It was no. like, like when you get an Ikea catalogue and it's in lots of different languages, It just so everyone can read it. It's just that. Yes, exactly. 
Although that's a good point, isn't it? If you wanted to learn Swedish, then your Rosetta Stone is your IKEA instruction manual. As you say, that's not why IKEA did it. But in thousands of years' time, <laughs> if they start doing instruction manuals in stone... <laughs> they may be clearer. Although, actually, some of those manuals are in hieroglyphs. They have pictures of people assembling flat-pack furniture. There you go. Absolutely right. If we lose the ability to read English and, and Swedish and all those other languages, we could develop a new IKEA instruction manual-based hieroglyphic system. On American History Hit, we ride the wild Oregon Trail, delve deep beneath Central Park, and fight the Forgotten War of 1812. Join me, Don Wildman, and my expert guests as we uncover the stories that have shaped America in all its endless complexity. We'll follow John Wilkes Booth as he shoots President Lincoln and goes on the run. And we'll walk under the stars with Harriet Tubman as she finds her way to freedom. Follow America's story from the first native people to footprints on the moon. On American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, with new episodes every Monday and Thursday, Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk about hieroglyphs themselves. Do they function more like an alphabet as we'd recognize an alphabet? Or as something like Chinese characters which function slightly differently? Or are they like emojis? And is there an agreed alphabet? Is there a kind of formal system of writing so everyone has to do the same thing? It's a mixture and that's one of the reasons, I think, why it took as long as it did for Young and Champollion and others to understand it. I was talking earlier about this guy in the 1600s, Athanasius Kierke, who believed they were entirely symbolic. He was wrong. For a long time, it was not thought that the hieroglyphic signs had a phonetic value, a sound value. So in the same way as our alphabetic signs can all be vocalised, A, B, A, B, K, D, etc. It was believed that hieroglyphs did not have that facility. In fact, the truth is that they are both, or, or across the dozens, hundreds of hieroglyphic signs, some of them are purely symbolic. Others of them can have sound value. And depending on the context, they either have it or they don't. So it is possible to write, and actually the tourist industry in, in Egypt is a good reflection of this, it's quite possible to write non-Egyptian words entirely phonetically. So you all know, as you've been to Egypt, that if you walk into a jewellery shop or a t-shirt shop, you could have your name written inside a cartouche. 
with hieroglyphs and sometimes the hieroglyphs do allow us to convey the sounds properly but you know you might find actually that what somebody in a t-shirt shop tells you says Dallas actually might be read by an Egyptologist is more like Diris. Can you give us an example? Okay, take Dallas for example. How would you, if we were back in the fourth dynasty, how would you write my name? I would write a hand sign, which is a D. See, un- why is a hand sign a D? That is lost to us. Okay, it just is. That's lost to us. But perhaps it's because the Egyptian word for hand is jeret, which is written with a D. So perhaps the Egyptians in that case took the sign for a hand. It looks like, you know, a hand on its side. They took that and then the first sound of that word, that spoken word, comes to be represented by that sign. We don't have that process for everything. But anyway, so you start off with a D. Hand. You'd probably have a vulture, which is not really an A, as we would have it in the, the name Dallas. The way we vocalise it is more like an R, like a long R, but actually... Native Egyptian now, it's what we call an aleph, and it's a sound that we don't really have in our language. It's a kind of a very throaty, sort of kind of breathy, oh. So, da, da. And then a lion, which at various stages in the Egyptian language is either an R or an L. You might have two lions for the two L's in Dallas. Then I think you could probably get away because the, the second A in your name isn't really pronounced. It's not Dallas, it's Dallas, almost as if there's no vowel there. So I think I would write hand, vulture, lion, lion, and then fold of cloth or a door bolt. Different signs both have the same value S. So that, I think, is a million miles away from Dallas. But actually, like I say, if you just gave it to an Egyptologist and said, what does that say? They might tell you, <laughs> Dars. I'm going to get that tattooed on me. And if it's wrong, yeah, I'm going to blame you. <laughs> <laughs> so that idea of a mixture is very interesting. A mixture of kind of like emojis, but also grammar and formal language as, as we might know it. When we were kids, you might have handwriting lessons at school. Crikey, having to draw a vulture and a lion the same every time, neatly, in your exercise book. Was there lessons in how to draw or carve a vulture? Because that sounds difficult. Yes, there were. And yes, it is hard. It's one of the things you have to learn when you're learning the language. In modern times, that is. I've been through that, and it is hard. It's actually a useful process because it does put you in the mind of the scribe, as it were. We do have things like what we call writing boards, and then we have the sort of ancient equivalent of scrap paper, usually little fragments of either pottery or flakes of limestone, little things which are easy to acquire and very disposable that have a nice flat surface on that you can write on in ink. And we don't have a huge number of these, but we have enough to show scribes practising, sometimes practising the language, otherwise sometimes practising drawing. I think it's important to remember here that the script is sometimes written in extremely fine, as we've said, hieroglyphic signs, very beautifully detailed hieroglyphic signs, chiselled into rock or plaster on, say, tomb walls or temple walls. In those cases, it would probably be a sculptor, you know, with a hammer and a chisel who knows how to do these things. Most writing, though, would be done with a reed pen and ink on something like papyrus. And in those cases, they're not nearly so detailed and not nearly so beautiful. There's also quite a lot of scope for scribes to have their own handwriting. In the same way as if you and I were to both write the word Dallas. 
you know, we both know how to write it. And I'm confident, even though my writing's pretty terrible, that we could both do that in such a way that anybody else could read it. But would my D look the same as your D? No. You know, and would the A look the same? No. The characteristics would be there, but the handwriting would be different. This is why, actually, if somebody's trying to fake an Egyptian object, which is a thing that happens because people want to try and forge antiquities and make money from them. If they've got hieroglyphs, that's for somebody like me, the best way to be able to say, nah, because it's really hard to get hieroglyphs right. And that is what the ancient scribes were learning. Things like spacing, when you look at a faked antiquity, things like the spacing of the signs, the way that they're drawn, you can very often say, nah, might look like it to you. It's not. I can see you on Antiques Roadshow, (laughs) disappointing people when they come with their (laughs) priceless thing. And you're going, nah, I was made last week. In terms of the alphabet, if we, if I can call it that, just give us an idea of how many symbols there are in this pictorial alphabet. I mean, I, people walking sideways a lot, I, I think, are from birds and other animals. It tells us a lot about the culture. Yes, you're right. So at the back of Sir Alan Gardner's... Ah, Alan Gardner. I wanted you to tell us who Alan Gardner is, yes, because th- this is the kind of lexicon or the thesaurus, if you like, or not the thesaurus, the dictionary. It's his learn how to read hieroglyphs book but it's the third edition is from the 1950s i think and i think it's more or less been superseded now but it was what i was taught not in the 50s i should add but his ends with this is what i wanted to show you i can find it this is an index of signs arranged according to gardner's own groupings so section a man and his occupations a goes up to 55 that's 55 different hieroglyphic signs of a human being doing various different things. That one at the end is freelance podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) There's then woman and her occupations, only seven of those. Crikey, there you go. That says something, doesn't it? It was not a gender-balanced society, I'm afraid. Anthropomorphic deities, 20 of those. Mammals, skipping ahead, 34. Parts of mammals, 52. So, you know, a paw, a leg, a head with horns. And I don't honestly know how many hieroglyphic signs there are altogether. So there are 27 sections, and each of them's got anywhere between half a dozen and 50-odd signs in them. I mean, we're well into the hundreds, obviously. It's funny, you know, when you, if you go on holiday somewhere or you're working abroad somewhere, you pick up a few bits of language and you can order a beer and that kind of stuff, and then after a while you forget it all. And, you know, I've spent a bit of time in Egypt, and... I used to know a bunch of them. I've, I've forgotten them. The only one I can remember is the hieroglyph for a city, which is a circle with like a cross in it, like a crossed oh, yeah, yeah. road for like city planning or something. But it's the only one yes. I can remember. Whenever I scan across looking at hieroglyphs, I see that. I'm like, aha, I know what that means. It's a walled city in plan, isn't it? It's a circular yeah, that's enclosure. Right. It's like where two roads meet. With, exactly, with a crossroads in the centre, which in itself is that I was going to say earlier, and I'm not really an expert, I'm not a linguist or you know, neurologist or anything, but language is a kind of proxy for the way that we think, isn't it? It reflects the way we think. And writing is an abstracted extension of the language itself. And when you think about that city sign, it's easy for us now to imagine looking down on a city because we have helicopters and aeroplanes and drones. The Egyptians couldn't have had that view. They couldn't have looked down onto a city and seen an enclosure wall enclosing houses and other buildings with a crossroads in the middle. So somebody has to kind of go, it it is what it looks like from up there. We can't actually see it, 
but it, it is what it's like. And that sort of intellectual leap I find fascinating. As a sort of end point, just while we're on this topic, all languages are kind of reflections of the culture and of the time and everything else. But there is something special about hieroglyphs, I think, because when you look at them visually, we see pictures. What did that mean for Egyptian society? I suppose it's that connection between the culture and the language. And every culture is, you can make a connection to the way things are written and the way things are expressed. But there's something really special about hieroglyphs, which is why I guess you became an Egyptologist and why we're so, the fact that Egypt as a culture has an ology attached to it. We're fascinated by it, aren't we? It's an ancient culture that does attract a lot of attention and I was just one of the very many people that get kind of hooked on it. And hieroglyphs are definitely a part of that. And I can remember being at the British Museum as a very small child and looking at very colourful hieroglyphic signs and thinking there is something kind of fantastical and interesting about the idea that little pictures of birds and men could be a script. It's a very visually striking culture, monumental architecture, images of men, women and gods. It's very kind of high contrast and very colourful, if you know what I mean. It's all very clean lines, you know, when you think about hieroglyphs, but also the images that go with them. It's all very clean lines and often very colourful. And I think that really appeals to me. It's very visually striking. Hieroglyphs is part of that. If you look at the groupings of the signs at the end of Gardner's big book, I think you can see something of you know, of what Egypt was like in that, you know, you see men dressed in the kinds of clothing that they would have been dressed in in ancient Egypt. And you see elements of the landscape, a sun rising above the mountains, which is how the Egyptians really saw the sun rising every day in the east. You see lots of the animals that are around, you know, it draws on their natural environment. And there's quite a lot of militaristic looking signs, you know, which reflects a culture which was quite militaristic at times, lots of hitting each other. I think in that sense, hieroglyphs is an excellent kind of way into what Egypt was like. Again, it's that sort of proxy for thought, but also the place, the environment. I think we'll leave it there. Chris, what a pleasure. I love this discussion. Come back. I come back and talk about other things. I'd love to. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Chris, as ever, for being witty and fantastic and fascinating, as you always are. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to go and listen to previous episodes and don't forget to tell your friends and family, as ever, all about it. If you've got a story you'd like us to tell, a thing you've always wondered about, something that's been bugging you or nagging you that you think we should cover, get in touch. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com we always love getting your suggestions and I look forward to your company next time While I still have you very briefly if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout you get 50% off your first three months that's patented for 50% off your first three months and if you're an apple listener you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the apple app